Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Check podcast. You know what I'm about to say, and I know you don't want to hear it, but we need your support. The Tortoise Check is really struggling at the moment to keep the lights on, mics on, and the conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep happening. We've no ads, we've no sponsors, we've no corporate interests, we have no sugar daddy. We rely entirely on you to keep it going. So if you're one of the thousands of people listening, please join us. Please come on board. Please click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise It is the only way we can keep the show on the road. And it is the easiest bit of activism you can do. And we really appreciate every cent we get. There's no point sugarcoating it. We have had a terrible couple of weeks on the tortoise shack. We have thousands of additional listeners. But we're really struggling to make ends meet and keep this thing going. So if you value independent media, you have to pay for it. I'm sorry, I wish I had a different answer for you, but I do not want the Tortoise Shack to become a billboard for corporate interests, editorial control, and the type of crap that is now owned by basically two large companies in Ireland in terms of the podcast networks. And we just don't want to do that. It is not who we are, and it's not who I think you want to listen to. So do me a favor and click the link that says patreon.com forward slash Tortoise Shack. I am shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Yusuf Jamal, the co-host of Palcast. I'm joining today from Kuala Lumpur. Today is November twenty-eighth. Uh, and um, taking part in the uh, International um, Palestine Studies um, Conference taking place at the University of Malaya. And in fact, it's organized by the Hashim Sani uh, Center for Palestine Studies, one of our co-sponsors. Uh, I'm joined today by Helena Koban, the president of Just Word uh, Education, and uh, producer Tony Groves. Uh, today is a very special day because tomorrow is the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people, which is marked by the UN um, on the 29th of, of, of November um, uh, every year. And November is, uh, is a month full of dates and anniversaries for Palestinians. It's also the month where um, Arthur Balfour um, Gave a declaration, a promise, uh, to, uh, Lord Rothschild, um, giving him a, uh, Jewish homeland, um, in Palestine for Jewish people. Um, today we will talk about discourse and terminology. And I think it's important, uh, in light of what's happening in, in, in Gaza today, where there is much talk about the humanitarian pose. This is an interesting term that we, we heard for the first time uh, during the uh, genocide in Gaza uh, as uh, opposed to ceasefire. There is no mention of ceasefire ending all forms of hostilities, but rather a humanitarian pose as if there is a resumption uh, very soon to the genocide. And this is very worrying for the Palestinian um, people. Welcome, Helena. What, what do you think of this terminology um, taking a place uh, today and, you know, uh, describing what's happening as opposed to the genocide, uh, as opposed to 
having a complete ceasefire. Yeah, well, thank you, Yusuf. It's great to be with you as always. Um, you're in Kuala Lumpur. I'm here in Washington, D.C., in the traditional land of the Piscataway people. Tomorrow, I'm heading up to New York to the headquarters of the United Nations for the, the, to, to be with some of my uh, friends and colleagues in NGOs working for the rights of the Palestinian people up there. So your question about this terminology of a humanitarian pause versus a ceasefire, I think it's very worrying on a number of different levels. Um, first of all, um, the concept that it's just a pause and our president, um, Joe Biden, <laughs> proud Irish-American president here, um, Sorry, I had to get that dig in for Tony. Um, but Biden has made quite clear that he still supports Israel's resumption of its attack on Gaza. He's, Biden has expressed some little um, shreds of concern that he doesn't want Israel to be um, to harm civilians too much. I think that he that Biden has become quite worried by the rising wave of, sorry, that he's become worried by the rising wave of support for Palestinians here in the United States, which is quite important amongst his political base in various parts of the country. But, you know, he, he is not prepared to tell the Israelis to stop their assault on Gaza. And as Rashid Khalidi and others have pointed out, by painting this as Israel's right to defend itself, that means that there's no limitation on the kind of weapons that the Israelis can use. In, I mean, from the American point of view, of course, from the international law point of view, nearly everything that Israel has done militarily in, in Gaza, and especially its siege on Gaza, has been a major violation of international law. So yeah, it's this concept of a humanitarian pause is worrying because it's just a pause. It's not a total ceasefire. And a ceasefire is what we need. Total ceasefire followed by very speedy attainment of Palestinian national sovereignty in the, in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. But um, another aspect in which it's bad is, is just this concept. Everything in, to do with Palestinians is humanitarian, humanitarian, humanitarian. Well, you know, it's not actually the, the problem is not a humanitarian problem. The problem is a political problem. The Palestinians need national rights and national sovereignty. Once that is resolved, they can build their national economy. They're very smart people. I think uh, we all know that. They know how to build states. They know how to build economies. But they, as of now, the Palestinians in the homeland, in the West Bank and Gaza, are still trapped under Israel's occupation. So that is the, the problem that has to be resolved. Yeah, the, the language of humanitarian pause is very worrying, Yusuf. Yes. Uh, you know, as a Palestinian from Gaza, I even do not feel that this humanitarian pause is about Palestinians in Gaza. Um, I do believe that it's about Israeli captives um, in, in Gaza. And once they are released, uh, Israel will resume um, its an assault on Palestinians. So if Palestinian factions in Gaza, say, have 20 more Israeli captives, um, the uh, 
pose will continue for two more days. Uh, but then if they run out of civilian captives, uh, Israel will completely and, uh, you know, without mercy, uh, resume its attack on, on Palestinians. This is, in fact, what Israel's defense minister um, stated today. He said once the uh, humanitarian pose is, is over, Israel is going uh, to attack all over Gaza Strip, including in the south. So there is, in fact, fear among Palestinians that once this pose is over, um, Israel will be also invading parts of southern Gaza where a huge number of people uh, from the north have uh, been uh, displaced too. Uh, so, you know, what's, we, we, we do not know what's going to happen to Palestinians in the south. Um, also in the north where humanitarian aid did not make it uh, in, in most parts of, of, of the north and, and the south as well when it comes to, to fuel and other basic um, supplies. And I agree with you that it's not humanitarian. We reject aid as Palestinians. We do not need aid. We are capable, you know, people. We have a lot of skilled workers, educated people. Education literacy in Gaza is the highest in the Middle East. It's 98.5%. Uh, there are a lot of educated people. We do not need aid. We need a political solution. Uh, the question of Palestinian refugees, which is one of the most important questions, the question of uh, Palestinian political prisoners in Israeli jails are not humanitarian issues. These are political issues. And we need a political um, solution, political sovereignty, where we can enjoy um, full equal rights and have a say over our future, which we do not now. Um, so definitely, I agree with you on this. Uh, it's never humanitarian, um, although the situation, the humanitarian situation is very dire. But again, it's a man-made crisis. It's political and we need a political um, solution. And as you said, language is very important. I recently came across conversations on social media of people talking about the Israel project, for example. Uh, I read the Israeli project in 2011 with Dr. Rifat al in Gaza. In fact, Rifat supervised, along with other translation professors, the translation into Arabic of this project, of this document. It's almost 115 pages, uh, as far as I remember. And it has 25 effective tools of communication. So language is very important when we talk about ceasefire, humanitarian pose, how, you know, the dehumanization of the Palestinian people through language was very uh, clear during the, the genocide in Gaza, where, for example, the Guardian described Palestinian children released from Israeli jails as um, minors or, um, you know, adult teenagers. Yeah. I so there is no mention of children. I know. I think um, the coverage here in the United States in the corporate media has been totally, well, not totally, let's say 95% focused on, you know, the release of the Israeli hostages and endless pictures of them reuniting with their families and this and that. And um, almost no coverage whatsoever of the Palestinians being reunited with their families, even in 
East Jerusalem, where the, you know, returning captives from the Israeli prison system going to East Jerusalem aren't allowed to meet with any friends or supporters. They just have to, like, their families are totally um, oppressed as they receive their loved ones. So, you know, to get that kind of coverage, you have to go to media that is not U.S. corporate media. I I have slightly um, mixed feelings about the big movement, um, the, the big kind of PR campaign in favor of the Israeli hostages. First of all, I would like to say, see a, a, an, a, a big PR campaign of equal weight for each of the Palestinian prisoners and detainees. And first of all, we need to remember that, you know, Israel has released, what, now 150 Palestinian detainees, but it's actually in the West Bank has, has detained more than 200 in that same time. Plus, from Gaza, when people were trying to go from North Gaza to South Gaza, under the instructions of the Israeli military, they had to pass through a checkpoint and many of the men were taken away from their families and and bust over to the, the Negev. You know, so hundreds more Palestinian detainees have been taken in these four days um, in, in which 150 have, have been released. And those kind of um, figures and just the, the, as you said, lack of humanization is, is very serious. I would say, however, regarding like the big campaign in favor of the Israeli detainees, um, that it has acted to some extent politically inside Israel to um, force the Israeli government, which is dominated by extremely hawkish military people, to force them to, to have this pause because the people in Israel, the Jewish Israeli people, which are the ones that count, although, of course, 20% of the population is not Jewish, um, they actually say that they, pref- they prioritize a ca- campaign to release the hostages over the campaign to destroy all of Hamas and all of Gaza, which is interesting. And so I, th- I think the Israeli um, government has been in a bit of a dilemma, but the militarists uh, that dominate the government are very eager to resume the assault and to make it, of course, they're having with each of these days of the so-called pause, they have more time to prepare for a truly massive operation, which I guess would come um, in a couple of days, you know. So it's going to be terrible for all of, you know, your family and friends, all of my friends there in Gaza once this so-called pause ends. Yes, Helena. Um, as you mentioned, um, during the um, these four days, hundreds of Palestinians were um, taken by the Israeli military, both in Gaza and in the West Bank. But since October 7, um, 3,200 Palestinians uh, were arrested by Israel. Um, so it's a massive arrest campaign against Palestinians uh, we've never seen a campaign on on this scale uh, targeting Palestinians, arresting them and torturing them. Many of these uh, children, women who were released um, from Israeli jails as part of this swap deal uh, between Hamas and Israel, 
spoke of torture. Um, they did not know what was going on outside prison. Even the day they were released, they were not told that they would be released. They were told that they, they were supposed to be transferred to other sections and prisons so that other prisoners do not know that there is a um, prisoner swap deal. So this shows the um, you know amount of uh, disinformation and the blackout uh, imposed on on Palestinian uh, prisoners, political prisoners in Israeli jails. One prisoner, also a child prisoner, uh, mentioned that uh, another prisoner from Abu Asab family was killed because of torture, just because he asked his Israeli jailer if there would be a ceasefire. That was his crime. Um, Again, also, uh, special Israeli units and forces broke into the houses of these children and women, especially in Jerusalem, and they made sure that all media crews uh, left the houses before their arrival so that they do not capture the moment uh, they meet with their families after so many years. So again, it's part of the dehumanization of the Palestinian people. Palestinian people are not allowed to celebrate their freedom and, and release from Israeli jails. Um, on the other side, you have, you know, Israeli hostages, some of them uh, based on what the Israeli government allows, get this coverage, uh, Western coverage. They're humanized, they're people, they have names, they have stories. Uh, but at the same time, uh, yesterday, and interestingly, I read a letter written by one of the civilian Israeli hostages, a mother with, with her child, thanking uh, her Hamas captives uh, for the good treatment they, they received. Now, there are people saying, no, we cannot verify that this is like an authentic letter. I agree with them. But, you know, for us to verify that, Israel should allow its hostages to speak to the media. Israel doesn't allow its hostages to speak to the media. And then there is only one narrative coming from the, the Israeli side. Yeah, and of course there was the, the older woman who was released um, back at the beginning, near the beginning of this release process, before the, the, the humanitarian pauses, who as she, you know, she, she was wheeled in, a, I think, her wheelchair by a Hamas person and she wanted to turn around, or maybe it wasn't a wheelchair, but she wanted to turn around and thank the Hamas person for, for the way, for the very courteous way that he had treated her. And, and the Israelis were, were horrified. Like, how, how can this Israeli woman be treating a, a, a Hamas person, you know, respectfully? It, it was kind of, it was very telling. I, I want to come back to this issue of um, humanitarianism versus politics. I mean, obviously, the people of Gaza need massive relief and reconstruction project after the devastation of the whole of Gaza City, which, you know, is the largest Palestinian city um, anywhere, uh, completely destroyed. It, it needs to be rebuilt. It's very similar to, you know, the, the destruction of many of the cities in Russia or, or Germany during the Second World War. And um, so you need immediate relief, you need a massive reconstruction project, but all of that is provided within a political context. So 
during all the previous Israeli assaults on Gaza, at the end of that assault, then there would be aid coming in from the EU. And this happened, obviously, in the West Bank as well after the assault of 2002 when when the Israeli military destroyed many major infrastructural projects throughout the West Bank and Gaza. So the EU and and Japan and, to a certain extent, um, the United States provides money for the reconstruction, but it all goes through Israel. It all, you know, under the terms of those um, deals, it all had to go through Israel, which meant that Israeli shipping companies, Israeli um, supply companies, Israeli trucking companies all got a nice... Um, profit from from the reconstruction. Plus, you know, the Israeli government would tax the goods going through. So, and of course, they would control everything, everything that can go into Gaza. And they do to this day, all this humanitarian aid that's going into Gaza has to go through Israeli checkpoints. It has to be, you know, approved by Israel. My argument is that it's time now for the international community to say, no, the aid will go directly into Gaza that's needed for, for the reconstruction. Let's call it a you know, Marshall Plan for, for Gaza. Um, it, it can go in directly through the sea, through Egypt, and should not be subject to Israel's um, veto and Isra- Israeli profit-seeking. And in this way, actually, I think the international community, by which I mean the UN Security Council, would be saying that Israel's occupation of Gaza, Israel's control of Gaza, is ending. And maybe this is a a small um, ray of light, ray of hope that could come out of the current tragedy of Gaza. The Israelis have proved that they are um, they're just so brutal to the people of Gaza. I mean, we've known that for a long time, but this assault, more than anything, should prove to the, not just the peoples of the world, but also the governments of the world. And I think the movement is growing internationally, that you should have a total ceasefire, and that that ceasefire should be followed by the international community giving aid and reconstruction directly to the people of Gaza, which means breaking the Israeli occupation of Gaza. What what do you think about that idea and what do you think about the the prospect that we can win that from the international community? I think I totally agree with you that Israel should never be allowed to control reconstruction materials getting into Gaza. Uh, Israel should be the last country on earth uh, that would benefit from the destruction of of Gaza Uh, because if Israel rewarded financially for destroying Gaza, they will do it again and again. And they did it again and again in 2006, 2008 and 9, 2012 and 14, uh, 2020, 2021, 2022. So, you know, it's a very good business for them. They destroy, and instead of being punished and brought before courts, they are rewarded financially. They're paid to reconstruct Gaza and again and again. And they make a lot of money out of it, as you said. Uh, This should stop all these reconstruction materials and aid supplies should come through the sea, 
through Egypt, uh, but never through Israel. Um, this is definitely um, the case, Helena. I, I agree with you. Um, also, you know, the world should not allow Israel to get away with destroying Gaza so easily. Um, because they did it in the past, as I mentioned, and it will happen again and again if Israel is not punished for that. If the issue is not treated as a political issue, we have to look at the root um, causes of, of the problem. Uh, otherwise, we will see Gaza destroyed again and again in the future. Um, and not only this, but also Israeli companies benefiting and profiting um, from this business uh, of destroying Gaza and, and the lives of people, um, you know, the infrastructure in Gaza and all these buildings, 60% of Gaza's buildings have either uh, been completely destroyed or uh, seriously damaged because of Israel's uh, bombing of, of Gaza. Um, the prospect of this happening, I think with this is a historical moment for the Palestinian people. There are many governments that are speaking uh, out against Israel, including in the EU, Belgium, Spain, from Latin America, voices within the United States itself. There are people in, in, in the White House, different federal governments. We've seen a letter signed by 400 people. In France, we have 10 ambassadors to, to the Middle East who voiced their opposition to Macron's approach on Gaza. So we have the, the legitimacy. We have Ireland, we have South Africa, we have many Arab countries, Arab and Muslim countries, um, opposing you know, these approaches uh, that allowed for the, the destruction of Gaza um, and you know, allowing Israel to get away with destroying Gaza. So we can seize this international um, moment uh, if you uh, may, and make sure that there is a new plan for Gaza, uh, as you mentioned, a new Marshall plan for Gaza, in which Israel is not involved. Israel claims that it doesn't occupy Gaza. This has been the claim since 2005, when they uh, withdrew from Gaza. But people realize that this is just a lie. Israel controls even the calories getting into Gaza, uh, you know, they count the number of calories Palestinians in Gaza could have. Uh, not only this, when we talk about uh, reconstruction, Israel classifies many materials as dual-use uh, uh, materials, which means that these materials, such as cement, which is very crucial and important and critical for reconstruction could be used to build tunnels, then they're not allowed to get into Gaza. So what's the point? You know, if we uh, allow Israel to dictate the terms and the materials uh, that should be allowed to rebuild Gaza, then we will be at the mercy of, of the occupation. And this proves again and again, and Israel's actions in Gaza, you know, cutting fuel, internet, Telecommunication supplies in, in one day prove that Israel still controls Gaza. Can I make one quick point, folks, so before you continue on? It's been a brilliant discussion so far. But just what Yusuf said on the calorie count for Gaza. 
this was something that even the Guardian newspaper covered. Um, I think it was, you know, an allowance of over 2,000 calories for people uh, in Gaza. And that's that's going back over a number of years. But to make it more barbaric and more disgusting, Yusuf, I think it's important to point out that um, the Jerusalem Post ran a story that said that um, that Israel, uh, how to use wartime stress to lose weight. Oh. And they were using this the war times, yes, but uh, Elena, this is the this is the thing they were using in Israel and uh, the 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 stress of the conflict to as as a way to help you tackle the shift those last few pounds you need to shift. It's incredible to think how the difference in humanity in that. So apologies for coming in, but I just think it was something that stuck in my mind and has been itching at it. So I just wanted to raise that as a point. Continue on, folks. Um, thanks so much. Yeah. It's good that you you mentioned that kind of big contrast between the way Israelis live and the way Palestinians are forced to live, um, Tony, because my friend Miko Pellet, you know, who is an Israeli-American who is a a deep anti-Zionist activist, says that every time he goes to Israel, like, you know, you're maybe in the south of Israel, you're, you're 10 minutes away from the people of Gaza and you know that your friends in Gaza are suffering just terrible, terrible um, conditions, whereas the people in Israel are, well, you know, most recently, and this is bizarre to me, you know, going to a kind of a rock concert in the desert and having, you know, having a wonderful time just as if they were in Europe or somewhere. Um, yeah, so, so Yusuf, you mentioned some of the countries that are pro um, the ceasefire, that have been pushing very hard for a ceasefire. And I, I think it's also important to add the two two of the permanent members of the UN Security Council, Russia and China, have been pushing very hard for a ceasefire as well. And you know, the hope is that we can persuade uh, the last, the other three permanent members. I think Macron may. I mean, I heard Macron come out in favour of a ceasefire. I don't know the next time there's a, a vote at the UN whether he might do that. But Yusuf, you live um, generally in Turkey. And now you're visiting um, Malaysia. Can you talk a little bit about the potential role of Turkey, which is a NATO member, but could Turkey play a role in helping to to um, push the the Security Council and to provide some guarantees, some help for for the people of Gaza? I think Turkey could play um, a more proactive role in in Gaza. Uh, Providing that um, if it does so under its own umbrella rather than the NATO umbrella, <laughs> uh, I don't think that the people of Gaza would accept NATO coming uh, into Gaza. But if Turkey as a country um, and Palestinians in Gaza have a, um, a great respect for Turkey for different historical, political, social, and economic reasons. Uh, in fact, Gaza shares, uh, you know, uh, a maritime zone with, with Turkey. So it's not too far from us. And people would accept its role if it comes as, you know, one of the countries guaranteeing um, the future of, of, of Gaza, the people of not just Gaza, but also Palestine, uh, having, you know, especially that, People have seen how the United States for a long time uh, had the final say over 
you know, brokering peace talks between the PLO and Israel. So I do believe that people would welcome Turkey. Um, but as I said, without its NATO umbrella, like Turkey yeah, I, I didn't mean to say Islamic, that it should come as part uh, of a country that has. Yeah. Then, yeah, I think people would accept that. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't mean to imply that Turkey should come as part of a NATO force. Having a NATO force would be the last thing I would I would argue for. But I, I think by virtue of being in NATO, maybe Turkey could help persuade the United States not to veto a serious ceasefire resolution. Um which is what I want to see. Um, another thing that I know people are talking about and, and could and should happen is that the United States should allow the United Nations to accept the state of Palestine to enter as the United Nations as a state, not just um, in with observer status as, as it currently has. Um, so that's something I'll be talking about when I go up to the um, UN in New York um, tomorrow. So um, how are things there? Yeah, I think we need the United States to, you know, police and, you know, allow Palestinians to, to join the UN as a full member. So it's the US uh, and it's veto that prevented this in the past. There are multiple countries. Uh, I think now more than 120 countries that recognize Palestine. Uh, so the majority of countries in the world recognize Palestine, but then we have this veto power that stops Palestinians from becoming a full um, member at the UN secure uh, at the UN uh, at the United Nations. Um, uh, just I think before we um, conclude too, uh, which is you know connected. To, to what we're talking about, I want to share three headlines of what's going on uh, regarding the situation in Gaza. Today is the fifth day of the humanitarian pause, quote-unquote. And Gideon Levy, an Israeli journalist, says occupation will not end until Israel pays the price. This is an Israeli journalist saying that. And Israel to fight uh, across all of Gaza after humanitarian pause, defense minister says. And this is very worrying, um, especially that the South has been, you know, flooded with displaced people uh, from the North. It would be more catastrophic for Palestinians there, where also my family lives. And um, uh more people at risk of death from uh, this disease than uh, bombardment in Gaza, according to to the uh, World Health Organization. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite a wor- very worrying situation there. The so this humanitarian pause um, that we both agree is a terrible name for for what's happening um, is going to run through the end of the day. Wednesday, I think, and then um, God knows what's going to happen. They also have rain in Gaza, so all these people without shelter are just trying to figure out how to deal with the rain, and you might think rain is good when the people are lacking water, but of course the rain is not 
you know, you can't catch it and, and use it for, for cooking or, or bathing or, or drinking. And then it, it just makes all the sewage come up to the surface. And so it, it spreads disease very, very speedily. So I don't know. Can the world see that this disaster needs to end? I hope so. And we all need to do what we can to, to get the ceasefire and the, the, I think we need a word for the way that I'm, I'm, I w- would like to, to provide aid for aid to be provided to Gaza. Maybe calling it a Marshall Plan is not, not, not a great concept, but, um, a, a plan for reconstructing Gaza under conditions of national independence and national sovereignty that is free from Israeli occupation and control. That, I mean, that's what I, I would like to see. So, uh, Yusuf, do you have a couple of uh, final words or should we wrap up? Yeah, I will um, just share that even, you know, after five days of humanitarian pose, my mom told me that they haven't received any aid in the South, let alone, you know, people in the North who hardly got a hundred trucks of, of aid. So whatever aid we have, uh, during this humanitarian pace is never enough. Uh, just before, you know, the genocide in Gaza and under strict conditions because of the siege, we had 500 trucks of aid entering Gaza every day, aside from fuel getting into. So, so far we have a thousand, almost a thousand trucks getting into Gaza, but you know, people, even people in the South, like my family, they haven't seen any aid. And again, we do not need aid. It's all political. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Yusuf. Um, it's really an honor to have you with us here. Um, people out there, you've been listening to Palcast, a podcast on the intersection of Palestinian politics and world affairs with our host, Dr. Yusuf Al-Jamal and our friend Tony Groves of Tortoise Shack Media in Dublin. Um, actually, uh, Yusuf is currently in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, which is great. We're, we're kind of spanning the globe with our, with our PALcast here, which is what we should do. The PALcast is a collaboration of Just World Educational and Tortoise Shack Media, which is based in Dublin. And we have a new sponsor this week, which is the Hashim Sani Center at the University of Malaya. Our tagline here is One World, One Struggle, and we're trying to embody that in all of our work. Um, we urge you listeners to follow the Palcast on Apple or Spotify so you can catch each new episode as soon as it drops. And please continue posting great reviews for us on all those platforms. Tell all your friends and networks about the Palcast too so they can start listening. On behalf of Just World Educational, I want to thank Palcast's great host, Dr. Yusuf Al-Jamal, and also Tony Groves of Tortoise Shack Media. We call urgently for a complete ceasefire in Gaza and for the speedy march of Palestinians to liberation. For Just World Educational, I'm Helena Coburn, signing off for now.